and welcome to episode 82 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Jen McIntyre. Adam Faringer. Amanda Dinian. Myrie Lothian. Stephanie Machotka. Morag Walker-Wesselman. Hannah M. April Corkwell. Lily Waldsworth. Joe. Emily Biskey. Molly Prim. Melissa Wallace. Kerry McShane. Sarah Hines. Victoria Roberts. Becca Joel. Brad and Tracy Teal. Marianne. Katia Hood. Brittany Pollard. And Nikki Woodward. Not bad. Very good. We also need to do some key worker shout outs today. So weekly, we've been giving shout outs to people who are key workers keeping various countries afloat while we are all in various stages of lockdown. Yeah, so we today we'd like to give a big shout out to Bethany Mason, who is a pharmacy technician. And that comes from her mum, Shauna and sister, Nicole. Thank you so much for doing what you do. And that goes to everybody that is in those roles. Thanks. We appreciate it. I would also like to say a big hello to Carrie Shea, who is midway through her master's thesis. You get it, girl. You get it, girl. You just keep going, okay? The end will come eventually, and then you'll be like, wow, what did I do this for? I was going to say the end is nigh, but that's not really the vibe you're going for. It feels a little bit darker if you say it like that. (laughs) (laughs) And also in the last couple of weeks, we've been doing promos for other podcasts, Not maybe not necessarily paranormal-related um the reason we're doing this is because people are in various stages of lockdown and are looking for extra content so today's podcast promo is for the exercising depression podcast claire has created a podcast that talks about what it's like dealing with mental illness on a daily basis how she manages it and what the trials and tribulations are so we're going to play the promo now hi there My name is Claire and I'm the host of a new podcast called Exercising Depression. Now don't worry, it's not a podcast about how exercise is the best cure for depression or the only antidepressant you'll ever need is a walk outside, blah blah blah. No, that's both annoying and inaccurate. But it is a podcast about me, your standard issue 30-something married British person trying to live a normal life with mental health issues. I also just happen to enjoy torturing myself at the gym. There are many podcasts out there that talk about mental health and depression, but not a lot that discuss living every day with mental health problems. So, I decided to start one. You can listen to the Exercising Depression podcast on Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast providers. Mental illnesses and the stigma surrounding most facets of them need to be talked about more and more openly. So, come on, join me in the conversation with the Exercising Depression podcast. So that was the Exercising Depression podcast. Make sure you go and listen and subscribe. So our film review. Dun, dun, dun. Our film review this week is Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby was released in 1968. It has 8 out of 10 on IMDb and 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? I would love one. After moving into an apartment with Guy, her husband, Rosemary hears and dreams strange things. When she gets pregnant, she suspects her neighbours have sinister plans for her baby. So what were your thoughts on this film? This film is excellent. It thoroughly holds up to the test of time. You can tell when it was made, but it's still a really good film. 
I think I watched this film when I was a teenager and I did, definitely didn't appreciate it at the time. Yeah. And now re-watching it as an adult, I knew the basic premise of the story, but I didn't remember all the subtleties and nuances of it. And this film is stunning. So like, good. It's so good. It's paced perfectly. It's really interesting. It's subtle. It's not camp, gory, horror. And it's it's a real psychological thriller. It's yeah. brilliant. It's, I think it's very much before its time in the way that it does certain things in and the fact that it starts off as just like a you know like a casual sort of romance movie you know this new couple moving to the big city you're trying to make it trying to make it making friends with the cute old couple next door and then all of a sudden it goes from this normal process to suddenly becoming this really sinister intense film and it does it so well yeah and Mia Farrow is unbelievable in it I mean in the beginning I was like Oh, God. Like, it's, you know, when we were watching it, you and I were talking about how she's a bit annoying. Yeah, she's got a very annoying voice. But then as you go on, because she gets more frenetic as the film goes on, and because in the beginning, she's so childlike and vulnerable, Mm. you kind of are rooting for her the whole way. Because you don't know what's what's really happening, whether it's all psychological or whether whether it's rooted in reality. You are there with her the whole way. And I think it's because she's so vulnerable and childlike and naive, and she has this cute little way of talking and every all and it's juxtaposed with with all of the sort of rough grizzled brooklyn slash baltimore accents where it's all quite sort of of the city yeah real people not yeah. rough but they're quite blunt to yeah. the point i meant rough as in like vocally rough not yeah. as in they're all they're very gravelly deep voices aren't they yeah. apart from her and she's this picture perfect sort of innocent airy fairy floaty voice which is very irritating at the start but actually that's coming from a modern perspective and then as she grows into it like you said she does this really fine, really good portrayal of a character where even though I've seen this film so many times when we were watching it, I was like, maybe she is just having a mental health issue. Yeah, because maybe. it's coming across so, she's so manic at points where you're just like, I was just almost like, have I forgotten part of this film? Yes. Yeah. Is, is it actually one of those ones where it turns out that she's just having a mental health issue? So obviously it was released in the 60s, but there was a great question of, there, there's this really awful bit, which is basically about sexual assault. And, mm. and I kind of, I watched it and I went, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about this. But it manages it quite well i think it does and it doesn't seem too dated either I don't no think. it doesn't seem too dated because she's like she deals with it she's shocked and horrified by it which i thought was really interesting because i yeah. kind of thought oh god is this gonna be one of those things where they go oh well that's you know you're you're his wife and you have to do these things and i thought actually it does date very well there's mm. elements of it that really have not dated yeah, well like the cigarettes and smoking and the drinking yeah. when you're pregnant and stuff like that. oh that's true <laughs> and and the doctor going a woman should never read books rosemary yeah. <laughs> which i was like great brilliant you read those books rosemary i mean it is slightly paraphrasing because he's specifically talking about pregnancy books but it was it was there was an element of that where actually yes how stupid could you be to consider yourself that it's okay for you to read but i really like all the way through it before it even gets intense you see these clips of her where she's just sort of monologuing to herself so she's talking to herself and it's really endearing to start with but then it actually comes quite becomes quite important later on and it's just nice to see that development it's a great film if you haven't seen this film i would highly recommend that you watch it and think about the fact that it is the 60s and how clever it is Mm. and how well and like we said how well it stands up to the test of time which is very unusual for a horror film i think so what would you give this film out of five um i would give this a wholehearted five me too i would give it a five as well i think it's a classic film it's just a classic classic film and do not make 
there is a 2015 version that I haven't seen, but I can't imagine it being very good because A, I haven't heard of it, and B, this film does not need remaking. No, so it please watch the original. So that leads us to our story this week. It does. But interestingly, I am not telling the story this week. Sorry, folks. So this is a Dan episode. Bizarrely, although I don't quite know why, we've actually swapped places at the table that we sit at when we're recording. I don't know why we did that. I mean, I'm, I'm really liking it because I'm sitting on the comfy gaming chair <laughs> rather than that hard one that I normally sit on. So it's quite nice. So we've physically and in terms of the podcast swapped places this week because you have wanted to do this story for ages. Yep. It fit in with Rosemary's Baby for themes that we'll talk about later. And actually, I have never... I don't think anybody has ever researched a podcast episode this much in in the history of podcasts. There's like books on the table, like novels. I know there was like a Netflix documentary that you watch. You've been watching YouTube videos. And I swear if anybody complains about any of the content of this episode, I'm going to go egg their house. That's what I'm going to do. Thanks. Because... I cannot, I'm astounded and actually a little bit embarrassed about the amount of research you've put into this episode. <laughs> so are you ready for this? I mean, I am ready because I know what it's about. So I should be asking you that question, really. Are you ready? No. Right answer. Okay, so I've given this story the most emo title that I could think of. And it's called The Darkness Holds Me. Oh, I love it already. His footsteps on the gravel formed a baseline for the rhythmic sounds of the night as he walked down the dirt track towards his destination. Blackness of the sky was broken up by thousands of tiny specks of light, and the air was dank and humid in the way only Mississippi air could be. An occasional cool breeze brought Robert light relief as it cooled the beads of sweat resting on his skin. His shirt was already damp to touch. He hated this shirt. It was smart for sure, but the material was scratching something mad. He hadn't really known what to wear. After all, What do you wear to a meeting like this? It wasn't like meeting up with the boys down the duke or taking a looker out for a bite, yet somehow dressing for your grandma's funeral didn't seem quite proper either. Robert had settled on a pair of slacks and a dress shirt. He held his guitar by the neck, close to the body, and swayed his arm gently as he walked. He felt the rhythm of the night, and he joined in. As he strolled down the track, he thought back to the last time he was in the duke. He stung from the memory. The famous blues men Sun House and Willie Brown had been playing their regular slot that evening. Robert idolised the two men, and when Sun and Willie had taken their break, Robert got on the dark stage and picked up the guitar. He had known that he'd wanted to be like Sun House since the bluesmen first showed up in the Duke joints of Robbinsville. He'd gone to see the men play at every opportunity, playing on corners for nickels and dimes during the day and then lacing the pockets of the Duke owners of Robbinsville at night. Robert had found favour with the travelling bluesman because he was hot with the harmonica. They'd often let him hang around with them and play the guitar after they finished, but this was the first time he'd had the metal to get up in the middle of their set. Robert's skin bristled as he thought back to that night. He'd been crazy to do it, but the guitar had mesmerised him. Now he had his own guitar, which he'd happily played to the farmhands back in Clarksdale, but Sun's guitar was different. It glistened under that solitary light, calling to him. Robert was sure that even if he'd known what was going to happen, he'd still have gotten up on that stage. That night, he sat down, facing the audience, and began picking his way through that nasty swing. He loved that song. It went well, at first. The murmur of the crowd persisted, but as he hit the midsection of the first eight, the crowd started hooting and hollering. Get that guitar away from that boy. Never such a racket been heard in this duke. You're running people crazy. 
Sun had tried to allow him to at least finish the tune, but in the end the crowd was so hot he had to intervene. Sun got on the stage, muttered, leave it there kid, and took the guitar. There was a short sarcastic cheer and people got back to their drinks and their gambling. Robert hadn't stuck around after that. He ducked out the back sharpish. It had been six months since he'd last been in that duke. It had been the longest six months since Ginny passed. Robert's thoughts wandered for a moment as he thought of his wife. As he did, his pace slowed to an amble. He had met Ginny when he was 18 and she was just 16. Robert knew that he'd loved her from the moment he set eyes on her and she'd loved him the same. Her parents, on the other hand, weren't so keen. They were church folk, and any music that wasn't God's own belonged to the devil. Ginny and Robert had got married soon after they met, and Robert was desperate to be the husband and father that he'd not had in his own life. He quit the guitar and started working on the farm. He didn't enjoy the farm work. The days were long and the work was hard, but for Ginny he'd do anything. Robert had never been happier than he was in the moment he found out Ginny was expecting. He worked hard for the next eight months, scrimping and saving what he could to make the house a home before the baby was born. When Ginny was eight and a half months pregnant, she left for Chicago so that she could give birth at her grandmother's. Robert was to meet her there. He hitched across the country, playing his guitar on the streets wherever he could for bits of change. Most of the time, Robert was sure folks were paying him to be quiet, but that didn't matter. He'd have the money to bring Ginny and the baby back on the train, and that's what really mattered. He hadn't known what to expect when he got to the city. He was hoping for a boy. Regardless, he knew he'd love it more than he'd loved anything in his life. He'd been preparing his reactions as he walked to the apartment door, rehearsing his excitement and making sure he was able to control his emotions. Ginny's grandmother was tough. She wouldn't approve if he cried. He felt ready. Ready to see Ginny's warm smile. Ready to meet his child. Ready to be a father. He wasn't ready for what he heard when he got inside, however. Ginny and the baby were dead. Anguish filled his chest. A toad bellowed and it snapped Robert out of his daydream. He was filled with a purpose again. His pace quickened and he began to stride out. Things would be different. Next time. Especially after tonight. Picturing his triumphant return to the Duke, the adulation from the crowd and Ginny's warm smile, it was not long before he reached his destination. He stopped as the track he was walking on was intersected by another heading from left to right. He was here at the crossroads. He paused for a moment. There was a hesitation in his soul. He thought back to what Mabel at the farm had said when he'd asked if the ritual worked. It works just fine, boy, but at a price. It was a price worth paying. What did he have to lose? He had nothing left. It was the field or fortune. He walked out into the middle of the crossroads, took a fistful of gravel and placed it in his pocket, then dropped to his knees and held the guitar out in front of him. You know what I want, he thought. Robert waited. The rhythm of the night buzzed on. Nothing happened. Should have known better than to listen to that tin ear, he thought. He felt a desperation rise up in him. This has to work. There's nothing left. Robert felt the sorrow tighten in his chest. Water pulled in the corner of his eyes. Desperation turned to despair. And then he noticed. The rhythm had stopped. There was complete silence. He looked up. The sky was black. It was like someone had taken a brush of tar to a shed. Blackness. He shivered. He was sure the temperature had dropped. He had been in this position for a few minutes now and in all this time he hadn't moved. Not a muscle. A rigid statue making an offering to an unseen deity. 
He flinched as he heard slow, heavy footsteps approaching from behind. He fought the urge to look, remembering the advice of the old lady. You mustn't look him in the face. You were servant to him. The footsteps got gradually closer. Thud. 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 Until he felt a presence behind him. The hairs across his body bristled. His stomach tightened. He was suddenly fearful. Behind him he could hear heavy, steady, guttural breathing. Then he felt it. A firm grip on his right shoulder. It was the kind of grip that would have been reassuring from a father, but the fingernails felt like claws for his shirt. He was frozen. Freezing. Yet his forehead was filled with beads of sweat. He desperately tried to remember what he had to do next. He slowly lifted the guitar above his head, trembling, keeping his eyes down as instructed. After what felt like a lifetime, he felt the weight of guitar lift from out of his outstretched arms, and out of the corner of his eye he saw muscular, black arms lift the instrument up and over him. Again he waited. He heard movement behind him. Whatever was there was close to him. He could feel the air move with each movement. Then he heard the sound of the guitar being tuned. It was a familiar sound to Robert, yet in this moment it was so far removed from any guitar tuning he had ever heard before. Each strum felt deeper, more hollow than any note he could recall. It is done, a deep snarling voice said. The huge black arms lowered the instrument back into Robert's outstretched hands, but did not release the guitar. If you take this guitar, know that your soul is mine. Do you still want it? Robert mouthed the words yes, the words caught in his throat from the fear that he felt within himself. He felt the weight of what he was about to agree to. He was petrified. He did want it though. He wanted it more than anything. A moment passed. Yes, he said firmly and assuredly. Robert felt the grip on the guitar lift but he did not see the arms move. He spun around on his knees, the gravel catching at the knees of his slacks. The rhythm of the night returned. The sky was pierced by a thousand twinkling lights and Robert Johnson was alone, on his knees, with a guitar, in the middle of the crossroads. Sunhouse and Willie Brown were playing at a duke in Banks, Mississippi. They were getting ready to play and sharing their usual road stories as they did before every show. It had become a superstition to them. As Willie was regaling one of his favourite wagon hopping stories, Sun began nudging Willie furiously. Well, look who's coming in the door. Even got a guitar on his back. Willie looked up to see the silhouette of a gangly man striding through the door. The figure was wearing a white shirt, slacks and dress shoes, and over his back was a guitar, casually but confidently worn. Oh Lord, that's little Robert, replied Willie incredulously. Robert walked straight through the crowd. No one paid any attention to the figure. They didn't recognise him and they didn't care. There was beer to drink, cards to play and women to flirt with. It took only moments for Robert to be in front of the makeshift stage. Boy, now where are you going with that thing? hollered Son to Robert. To annoy someone else to death again? The bluesman folded up in laughter as Robert stood before them with his guitar. Robert didn't react. His stony eyes didn't flicker. They stayed transfixed on the two musicians. No, replied Robert bluntly. Just give me a try. The two stood looking at him for a moment. There was no harm to it. He might even make him look good. Well, okay. Robert took to the stage. He sat on the stool and fitted a seventh string to his guitar. Willie and Son looked at each other. This boy was asking for trouble after last time. Still, 
He deserved credit for showing so much brass. Now what's he fixing? Chuckled Willie. The two men watched as Robert fixed the string and began to tune. This was normally the signal for people to start paying attention. However, apart from the occasional inquisitive glance, the hum of conversation continued. When Robert was done, he shuffled around on the stool so his back was to the audience. Now who's he fooling? exclaimed Willie. Don't be so heavy on the boy, Willie. He's just fixing for a bit of protection after they start hurling drinks. The two men chuckled. Robert started to play. The two men stopped. In fact, everyone stopped. Chatter turned to hushed silence which slowly turned to hooting and hollering. But this time, it was positive in tone. The melodies and rhythms coming from young Robert's guitar were haunting yet incredible. There was no one this side of heaven that could play like that. No, ain't that fast, said Son. What the... How, how do you, you... You don't go away and get that good, Willie stumbled. The boy must have been hanging at the crossroads, you ask me. The two men laughed and finished their drinks. They watched as the audience danced, jumped and hooted as one. The audience was one whole movement that night and Robert Johnson was the rhythm. As Robert sat on that stage for the first time since the crossroads, he did so with confidence. Facing the back wall, he began to pick out rhythms on his guitar, rhythms he had never known before. And from the darkness at the back of the stage came two big black arms which played along with him. Robert felt no fear, only rapturous joy. It had been a year since Robert returned to Robbinsville and shocked his old mentors with his newfound talent. Word had got out about this guitar playing kid who played these haunted melodies and Robert had become the hottest ticket in the state. Robert felt good. Things were easier for him now. He didn't have to play on corners no more. Dukes across the state were clamouring for him. Easy work, easy money, easy women. Robert was in his element. Every night him and his friend from the darkness would play and every night he'd go home with a pocket full of notes and a beautiful woman on his arm. All eyes were on him and he loved it. The only thing that didn't come easy for him was sleep. In those moments where he was alone, in the darkness, in the silence, that's where things weren't easy. Thoughts of the crossroads, of those black arms and of the deal that he'd made that night plagued him. One haunting dream in particular played on a loop. He would be at the crossroads, on his knees, with his guitar in his arms. He would hear the footsteps coming, except this time the footsteps were coming in front of him, from the darkness in front of him. He would realise that he was facing the wrong way. He would try to turn, but as he did, he would be held in place by two strong hands upon his shoulders, each hand applying a heavy force, and each hand with those same claw-like fingernails. He would feel the claws break his skin, feel thin trickles of blood run down his chest, saturating his shirt as it met the material. And still from the darkness, the footsteps came, closer and closer. Yet Robert would be able to see nothing, because with the footsteps became a blacker darkness, the kind of darkness that came from the absence of light, all-consuming. And it would be hot, not warm and muggy as was typical during the night in Mississippi, but a searing heat, like being under the midday sun in the fields. As the footsteps would get closer, the humming of the night got louder. Only it wasn't insect sounds, it was something different, something out of place. As Robert would strain to listen, he soon realised that the sound was grinding teeth. He wouldn't be able to bear it anymore, and would begin to struggle against the arms, but to no avail. The footsteps and darkness would get closer. The pain from his shoulders would get more and more intense. Then, 
As the footsteps got nearer, the hold from his shoulders would break and Robert would be able to stumble to his feet. As he did, he would turn and run, sprinting faster than he had ever sprinted before. He would feel each of his muscles as he ran, and as he ran, a voice filled his mind. You belong to me. It was at this point he would hear the sound of something behind him, following him, at a pace. He would glance behind him to see four snarling hound-like creatures on his tail. They were close and getting closer. Robert would give everything to try and outpace them, but his body would fail him. Every muscle hurt and he would be snatching at breaths. The hounds got closer. He could feel them snapping at his feet and then Robert would trip. He would sprawl forward and land on his hands and knees. As he realised the fate that was about to befall him, he would howl, No! As the hounds caught up to him, the first hound to reach him would bark loudly and then Robert would wake up. As time progressed, elements of this dream would cross into his waking existence. Although he only saw those big black arms when he was on stage, there were times when he felt those claws on his shoulder. One night, when at a duke in Rosedale, Mississippi, Robert was talking to a young musician from the area who was being very generous with his money, buying Robert as much whiskey as he could consume. The musician asked him what his secret was to playing. Robert, in a whiskey haze, began to tell the youngster about the deal when he felt a hand on his left shoulder. Robert was about to turn when he felt the clench of the claw-like nails on his shoulder. Uh, practice, Robert said, and a good teacher. A guy called Zinnerman from down Martinsville way, he's pretty darn good. As he finished talking and the youngster accepted his response, he felt the claws lift off his shoulder. He understood. The dream would haunt him each night and every day he drank to chase the thoughts away. Robert made it his prerogative to be around people and alcohol as much as he could. And when he could, he avoided sleeping alone. He made it a point to have a woman in as many towns as he could. He kept moving around the south, playing wherever and whenever he could. He was doing well enough for himself, he had enough money to drink and eat, and wherever he went he was in demand. But he wasn't as successful as he'd hoped. He wanted to be successful on a national scale. That was the deal. One night when he was playing in Texas, Robert was approached by a man called Ernie Ertel, who asked him to record some of his songs. Panicked by the thought of playing guitar without the darkness, Robert was about to make his excuses when again he felt the clawed hand on his shoulder. Um, okay, said Robert, and Ertel arranged for him to go and record with producer Don Law the next day. That night, Robert dreamed only of Ginny. Nervous, he went to the studio to record. The recording space was small and lit by a solitary lamp. As Robert entered the booth, he noticed that the light did not reach the corners, and so he sat facing the corner, fixed his seventh string, and began to play. As he picked at the strings, those familiar hands extended from the darkness and plucked at the strings. This is it, thought Robert, as he played. A record will make me. I will make sure people everywhere know who you are, whispered a voice from the darkness. I look after my own. The relief that Robert had felt as he began to play was swamped by a dark sense of foreboding. Robert managed this persistent dream for years, but by August of 1938, Johnson's coping methods were beginning to catch up with him. He had been playing at a country dance at a duke called Three Forks in a town outside Greenwood, Mississippi. He had no woman in this town, and had started an affair with a married woman called Beatrice Davis. The couple believed that they had kept the affair a secret, and Robert was friendly with Beatrice's husband who worked the bar at the dance. On the night of the 16th of August, Robert had finished his set and was at the bar with another guitar player called David Honeyboy Edwards. Robert had had a fair few whiskies that evening and had been talking openly about his affair with Beatrice with a number of different people around the Duke. 
Ralph, get me a bottle of whiskey, would you? Robert slurred. Ralph handed Robert the bottle. Time to pay up, said Ralph. Robert started for a moment. The drink must have been getting to him. That sure didn't sound like Ralph's regular voice. He handed Ralph seven dollar bills and grabbed the bottle of whiskey. Just as he was about to swig from the bottle, Honeyboy pushed the bottle from Robert's hand, knocking it on the bar. Bob, it's dangerous to drink from a bottle of whiskey with a seal broke, said Honeyboy. Robert grabbed the bottle off the counter before too much whiskey could drain. I'll tell you what's dangerous. You slapping another $7 bottle of whiskey out of my hands, roared Robert. Defiantly, he swigged from the bottle in front of Honeyboy and then wandered off into the melee of the crowd. Damn, he lost me my whole bottle there, he thought to himself as he stumbled through the crowd. He laid his eyes on an attractive group of women in the corner of the duke and made himself known to them, pulling up a seat and joining in with their chatter. The more whiskey Robert drank, the stranger things became. He began to feel ill. Robert had drunk plenty of whiskey over the last few years and it never made him sick, just groggy. But he felt like he was going to throw up. He also felt hot. Not fever-like, but a searing heat, like the midday sun. His shirt was dripping with sweat. Determined to save face with the girls, Robert continued to nod along and tried to follow the conversation. But it wasn't long before he noticed that there was another sound, something louder masking the words that were coming from their mouths. Robert listened closely and he realised that he could hear the women's teeth grinding as they spoke. It was getting louder until he could focus on nothing else. He stood up, backed away from the table, stumbled and fell to his knees. He could see people in front of him but they were getting blurrier by the second and it wasn't long before Robert lost his sight completely and he was staring into darkness. Someone was moving towards him. He could hear the footsteps coming. The darkness whispered, I've come to take what's mine. Two strong arms came out of the darkness and lifted Robert to his feet. You've had too much, let's get you home, said a different voice. The next thing Robert was aware, he was in his bunk at the farm. He recognised the smells, he could see the moonlight cutting through the planks that made up the wall. He could feel the coarse cloth that made up the mattress. He laid there for a bit, his vision coming back slowly. He did not feel good. There was a sharp pain in his stomach. The pain grew and grew until he blacked out again. Robert was running through the cotton fields. He recognised them as the fields he'd worked as a boy. He didn't know why he was running, but he felt panicked. He could hear something chasing him, gaining on him. He looked behind him. He could see nothing but pitch black. There were no fields behind him, only an absence of light. Emanating from the darkness was a vicious snarl. Robert ran harder and harder until he felt the toes on his left foot catch on something. He began to fall. It's going to catch me, I'm a goner. He awoke with a jolt. He was flat on the floor of the bunkhouse. He was drenched with sweat. His heart was pulsing and he was in agony. There were people around him, concerned people. He tried to get up but he could only get to all fours and then he heard familiar footsteps behind him. Thud. Thud, thud, time to pay up, said the voice from the bar. Robert raised his head to the sky and from the darkest depths of the despair that he felt, he howled, no, with every last bit of his breath. As he collapsed, he could have swore he saw two black hands reach from the darkness and hold him. Robert Johnson died on the floor of the bunkhouse he was staying in. Three days after he consumed the bottle of whiskey given to him by Ralph, the jealous husband of the woman he was having an affair with. He was poisoned from three mothballs that were dissolved in the whiskey. The concoction of the whiskey and the dissolved mothballs reacted with a flare-up of a stomach ulcer that the musician had developed from his hard living. He died at the age of 27. 
His death was not widely reported, and even to this day his burial site is disputed. Four months later, in December of 1938, record producer John Hammond held the From Spirituals to Swing concert in Carnegie Hall in New York. Robert Johnson had been booked to play, but upon learning of his death, Hammond began the show with a solitary spotlight on a phonograph and played a copy of one of Johnson's records. The audience went crazy and he briefly became a national name. However, in the late 50s during the 78 revival, teenagers began began to become familiar with him and this inadvertently led to the beginning of the rock and roll movement. Robert Johnson's music inspired the generation of rock stars and is now a household name that people from all over the world know and recognise. Songs such as Crossroad Blues, Me and the Devil Blues and Hellhounds on My Trails are considered classic blues tracks and add fuel to the legend of Robert Johnson's deal with the devil. Although the most famous paranormal legacy that his name holds is the fact that he is known as the founding member of the 27 Club, another less known paranormal aspect to his story is the curse of the Crossroad Blues. The story goes that whoever records the song will be hit by personal or professional tragedy. The extent to which this curse stretches is remarkable. Eric Clapton recorded a version of Crossroad Blues with the band Cream. Months later, the band split up and Clapton spiralled into heroin addiction. Just when he was getting clean, personal tragedy struck as his five-year-old son fell from an apartment window and died. Another band that covered Crossroad Blues live was Leonard Skinner, again recording a copy for a live album, One More From The Road, that was released in 1976. Just over a year later, the band were involved in a plane crash that killed several people, including members of the band. The band disbanded after this. Perhaps the most eerie outcome linked to the curse is that of the Allman Brothers band. Crossroad Blues was a live favourite of Dwayne Allman, the seminal lead guitarist of the band. The band were heavily influenced by Johnson's music and used to have jam sessions in cemeteries. On the 29th of October 1970, Dwayne Allman was rushed into hospital after a drug overdose. The doctors did not give him much hope of surviving, but guitarist Barry Oakley prayed to God and asked God for one more year for his friend. He survived. On the 29th of October 1971, Dwayne Allman was riding his motorcycle across an intersection and hit a truck, causing him to lose control of his bike and die, exactly a year after his overdose. What is even stranger is that on the 11th of November 1972, Barry Oakley, his friend and guitarist in the band, was riding his motorcycle down the opposite road, hit a bus at the same intersection, but at a different end, and died. Dwayne and Barry were both 24 when they died. The bus driver and the truck driver were also both 24. That's a fucking great story. (laughs) Like, I, for once, desperately want this story to be real. (laughs) I really... Want him to have made a deal with the devil. Please tell me he made a deal with the devil. He made a deal with the devil. Yay! What a great story. What kind of stuck out to you about that story? I mean, it's a really sad story, right? I mean, I just for full disclosure, like I don't know this story. I don't really know anything about Robert Johnson. Music is not my forte. <laughs> um, you are the music nerd in this house. Oh, when his wife and his child died i was sitting here nearly crying because it's so awful to think that this man had basically worked his way across the country playing on street corners to see his unborn child and then you get there and the dream is over that's it see you later i can kind of understand say if he did make a deal with the devil right say say that bit is true so we'll work on the premise that's true he made a deal with the devil fuck it like what have you got to lose yeah i got I get it. 
Sorry, the not, re- that I, not that I would do it. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Devil, stay away. I'm not interested. Well, just as a little aside, when I was doing the research for this, I watched a YouTube video by a channel called The Grim Life. And him and his wife are doing a tour of the blues area. And they go to one of the crossroads that's reportedly the crossroads. And they talk about what it would take, like what it would take for them to make a deal with the devil. And the wife says, I would ask for all my family to be safe and well. And then they go and do the ritual. <laughs> I like. I don't know why that is chaotic energy. Why would it's you go and do? Why would energy. you go and do the ritual? I mean, like, I'm I'm fine to go. Oh, that's ridiculous. But I'm yeah. also not doing the ritual. Yeah. I'm not taking that risk. I don't need that in my life. So the reason that this story arises really is that it's twofold. Um, firstly, it's very well in the extent of the fact that Robert Johnson's history is not very well documented, but in what exists. A lot of the documentation credits him as being a, a, a poor to mediocre guitar player at yeah. best. And then going away for a period of time and then coming back really good. Okay. So it's this transformation of skill in a short space of time, which gives it some of its credence. The other thing that adds to this legend is that in the hoodoo tradition, which is a form of religion that comes from West African traditions and was very prevalent in the um, southern Mississippi Delta, which is where Johnson grew up and where blues music originated from. In the hoodoo, hoodoo tradition, that would have been a sort of part of their narrative growing up and just part of their life. There is a, a ritual that talks about if you want to develop a skill or a certain knowledge, you can go down to a crossroads in the middle of the night and a, a man will come, a big dark man will come and give you whatever it is that you're asking for. So... It might be winning at dice. It might be a particular skill or it might be knowledge of your neighbours or, or something like that. This is just an accepted ritual that you can do in that religion. In voodoo, which is like a variant of hoodoo or a, a variant of the Western African religions that it comes from, that, that guy is called Papa Legba, who's sometimes sort of linked to the devil. So that's where that comes from. So you can see how people of the time... So in the story that I read, the two elder bluesmen joke that he must have been messing around at the crossroads. Because they're aware of the... Because they're aware of this ritual and it's something that would have been in their lifestyle. So Is the... in the? I know you're not an expert on hoodoo, (laughs) so I'm not going to be like, why don't you know the answer to this? So in hoodoo tradition, is that man the devil? Or is that something modern Christianity has put onto the story? From what I've read, which is limited, and I'm happy to be staying corrected, it is a sort of it's not even western it's just a more modern take on who he is so he doesn't okay he is he appears in a number of different western african religions as well as voodoo and he does different things depending on what the story is he is a spiritual entity who who has great power and can sometimes do evil but i think the devil tag is something that other people have put on him it's such just such a cool story because like i can imagine there are plenty of people who would do this yeah. If they thought, right, Robert Johnson made a deal with the devil at the crossroads, it made him famous. Fuck a yeah, he died, but that's his own fault because he got poisoned by, you know, this this man who he was having an affair with his wife. I'm sure there are plenty of people that would take that risk. Yeah. Like, I'm convinced. Yeah, absolutely. That there are people who would go, I desperately want to be famous. Fuck it, if this works, I'm going to do it. Yeah, and I think it's it's part of... The mystery around it comes from the fact that he got so good in such a short space of time. So how long was the space of time? So this is where I might be a little bit mean to you and I might start unravelling some of your thoughts. Um, Bollocks. It depends on what you read. So I read quite a bit of stuff, as you've already alluded to, going into this, and I watched a couple of documentaries. 
and it ranges from six months, which is obviously a really short space of time. If you're not very good at guitar to then become an exceptional guitar player in six months, that's almost supernatural, right? But it can range to 18 months, depending on who you talk to. Now, obviously, that's still quite a short amount of time. But if you take into account that this man was desperate, he literally saw no other way. It's well documented that he wasn't into the farm work. And as an African-American man in that period of time in the South, he had two options. And the other option was playing the blues. And actually, he looked at people like Sunhouse and Willie Brown, who were making us a, a living and were idolised locally, and saw that as his way out. And also, he'd tried to have a normal existence with his wife, and his wife was taken away from him. In everything about him, there's this this sort of need, this belonging. And I think if you're that dedicated to doing something, actually practice is a way of improving. If you work at it, you do actually, there is an improvement. Six months, too short a time. 18 months, two years. You're getting into the realms of possibility here. Yeah. And the other thing that comes out of the story is this uh, this idea that he disappeared. So he vanished and nobody knew where he was. That's kind of a false narrative. It's because most of the, the oral history that we have of Robert Johnson comes from Sunhouse, who is obviously this leading musician, but he was very much entrenched in the blues scene in Robbinsville. So when Robert Johnson disappeared, he disappeared from Sunhouse's knowledge. So he contextually disappeared. Yeah. He didn't actually he disappear. He didn't actually disappear. And actually some of the records show that he took sort of part-time work and, and he, he, he appeared in lots of different duke joints around, which was just sort of roadside cafes essentially that were allowed to sell alcohol and also inner city bars kind of all catch all label for them playing the blues and actually there's also another guy on record that talks about where he was during this time and that that guy is a a musician called ike zimmerman who said that he actually spent a long time during this period of time teaching robert how to play guitar now, there's a supernatural element to this story as well, because actually the story goes that he took Robert Johnson to a graveyard in the middle of the night. Love that. Sat him on a grave and that said... some if, serious emo energy. Absolutely. Sat him on a grave and said, if you truly want to learn and understand blues, you need to play it at midnight on a grave. And the spirits will, <laughs> the spirits will teach you what blues is about. What a fucking tryhard. What <laughs> a tryhard. So... essentially it looks like from other if you look at other aspects other than Sun House's narrative it looks like Robert Johnson rocks up with a guitar with a plan and goes to see the best person that he knows and this guy says let's go and practice in the graveyard in the middle of the night which is eerie in a western context but actually if you think about it in the context historically of the time it makes perfect sense so most of the farm workers and farm hands and local people would have been living in bunkhouses if they weren't married so there would have been 10, 20 people in a bunkhouse with them. Um, all, the, all the walls are thin. And we're not talking about modern brick walls. We're talking about wood walls. So if you're a really bad guitar player and you want to practice, oh, you can't yeah. practice during the day because that's when you're earning your meal, meals. And you can't practice at night because people are going to let you know pretty quick how bad you are. So taking um, Robert out to a graveyard in the middle of the night makes perfect sense because graveyards are huge. They're often remote. Yeah. In practice without any criticism. Very unlikely that you're going to have somebody in the graveyard in the middle of the night. And if, if they are, they're, they're you know, they're you probably can up question to them as yeah. much as they can question you. So Absolutely. don't worry about it. So when you look at it in that sense, it doesn't seem as mysterious as it does in the legend that's around him. But isn't it mad that like this man, so did he actually play it was back to the audience? Yep. So that's a real thing. And he actually recorded with his back facing a corner when he was in the studio as well. no way yep. 
And so were people aware of this narrative when he was alive? Like people, did people genuinely think, oh, this man made a deal with the devil? Like not genuinely, but was this the narrative that surrounded him during his lifetime? I think after the sort of first month of coming back, when he started, when you started to spread and he started getting booked elsewhere, he started to feed off of it. So I guess, I mean, that works perfectly for him, yep. right? To be like this mysterious man who was kind of mediocre at best at yep. guitar, went away, made a deal with the devil, came back a prodigy yep. with a seventh string that yep. plays his back to the audience. So did people believe then that the reason he played with his back to the audience was because the devil's the devil was playing for him or so, whatever this entity was? So there's two whispers around it. There's the fact that he was playing to hide who was really playing the guitar. So this idea okay. that there were hands coming out of the darkness Love to play this. along with him. There was also a rumour that going around, and actually this is what the record producer who, who recorded his two, the two recording sessions that he did in his lifetime said that they felt that it was because he was a shy musician. However, if you listen to accounts of people like Honey Boy of Sun House, people that hung around with Robert Johnson, he was not shy by any means. The reality of the reason why he sat, sat with his back to the audience in both the studio and on stage is because he was protecting his songs and his the, his style of playing. So the seventh string was a new thing that he added. Yeah. The way that he played was completely, it was a completely new sound, as much as a new sound can be in a genre of music, but it was completely different. And it was the way that he played that was getting him booked. So he, he it was almost a lack of trust. So he didn't want other people to see what he was doing so they couldn't steal his sound. So we're not talking about the days where it's really easy and accessible to just get a recording of his music. In fact, he didn't record until two years into his playing career, or until his good playing career. Yeah. He didn't record. So there's no recordings of him that people can listen to. So the only way they could learn how to play him was to watch him. So if he shielded himself from the audience, nobody was able to see how he did it. And steal his ideas. Absolutely. And the way that his recordings come about in Texas are very haphazard. Okay, so they're, as it said in the story, a guy just approaches him and says, do you want to record? And he says, yeah, why not? But he doesn't know them from Adam. He doesn't trust them. They're people in Texas, which is not where he's from. And so he does the same thing in the studio to protect what he's playing. It feeds into his image, but it's also doing him a service in a practical way as well. So he he was kind of responsible for the rock and roll movement, you know, um, remotely. But also that, I mean, we hear so much today about the 27 Club yep. and all of the members of the 27 yep. Club and, and all these great musicians who have died, um, who are members of the 27 Club. And he was number one. Like yeah. he was, he started essentially the 27 Club. So I wonder, did somebody, so you have Robert Johnson was the founding member of the 27 Club. Yeah. Who came next that people went, ah, he went the same way as Robert Johnson. You know what I mean? When did, yeah. that's another episode for yeah. another day. I mean, I don't, I don't believe in the 27 Club narrative, but it's really interesting that it he is. is number one. It is very fascinating. The other thing that you have to remember as well is that actually this whole idea of selling your soul to have musical genius is actually not unique to Robert Johnson. It actually predates Robert Johnson by nearly 200 years. So there's a violinist called Nicola Pag- Paganini who has a very similar story to Robert Johnson in that he was a terrible violinist and then he went away for a period of time and then came back and he was phenomenal. No way. He wrote songs about, he wrote classical music about the devil because that was part of his narrative. So this isn't a new thing. It's just that the Robert Johnson one is probably the most, the earliest modern one about making a deal with the devil. I mean, that does beg the question, how did they get so 
because I believe music is a gift. Yeah. Like I believe that if me or you decided tomorrow we're going to learn how to play the guitar, give us ten thousand hours, we we'd be reasonable guitar yeah. players. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You'd be able to read music, you'd be able to play a song, all those things. But there's a difference between being able to do something and being gifted at something. And I do think really good musicians are people who are gifted. You know, they're born with this talent. So how if he was only a mediocre guitar player but then it's it, the story does say that he was a really good on good on harmonica so maybe he was a musical person so this is what i was going to say he is really good on a harmonica and actually maybe it's something about in terms of the context of the life that he's he leads so he's he lives in poverty he is a sharecropper he is a descendant of sharecroppers so would have grown up on a tenant farm being a farmhand access to musical in- instruments would have been limited maybe it's a case that actually he was gifted musically but he just hadn't got far enough in his development in terms of guitar playing because we yeah. know that he was a harmonica player and actually that's his in with Sunhouse and Willie Brown is that he plays harmonica with them when they're practicing and that's that's how he gets so close to to these two bluesmen and gets the opportunity to pick up a guitar a bit more regularly so maybe actually he is incredibly gifted he just hasn't had the time to develop with that particular instrument yeah so if we think about if we think about Greg for example our friend hey, Greg, Greg who did our music extremely naturally gifted as a musician there are instruments that he doesn't play but we've since we've known him he's picked up instruments afresh hasn't been brilliant to start with but has become really good yeah in a short space of time because he's naturally gifted and actually maybe the thing with Robert Johnson isn't this supernatural thing but it's actually that he is an inherently gifted musician but he just doesn't have the opportunity that other people have to be able to develop that skill no, I think you made a deal with the devil. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so just before we finish, yeah. what about this Crossroads curse thing? Listen, now, I love a good curse as well as the next person, right? I fucking love a curse. Okay. You tell me something's cursed and I'm into it. Yep. There are plenty of people that have probably played Crossroad Blues yep. on stage that have probably not yep. had tragedy befall them. But then the thing is, if you're looking for something, it's that confirmation bias, isn't it? If you think, if I play the Crossroads Blues, terrible things are going to happen to me. You then accredit all the terrible things that happen to you to the Crossroads Blues. If you know the legend around it. If you don't know the legend around it, you're not going to do that, are you? No. So I think, but I do think the, the death of the two band members on the motorbikes at the Crossroads is fucking weird. Isn't it really weird? That is really weird. And how odd is it that 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 overdose happened a year before and he prayed for a year and he got exactly a year it's almost like he made a deal with god yeah. like that's i mean that is weird i'll yeah. give you that it, it could just be a really weird coincidence yeah. but it's still freaky deaky yeah. but i don't think it's to do with the song no and i don't think it is either i just included it because it's, it's something that's common commonly written about in terms of rock and roll curses and tragedies because obviously those particular bands a lot a lot happened to them so eric clapton in his life there's a lot of tragedy and chaos around his life it's the same with Lynyrd Skynyrd. A lot of tragedy and chaos around them. It's the same with the Allman Brothers. There's you, we could have offshot. I could have if off, done a whole episode on the Allman Brothers and the stuff that goes around them. But I think when people, when authors and the two books that I read are really well written. But I think when they're looking for threads, they will find them. Absolutely. But you could, I mean, you could say that about like any of the members of the Twenty Seven Club, for yep. example. Like take Amy Winehouse, yeah, member, like really famous member of the Twenty Seven Club obviously died very very far too young and very tragically but had been a heroin addict was a raging alcoholic was trying to wean herself off alcohol which is a really dangerous thing to do without support and 
it's it's all well and good to say all oh, these people's lives are full of tragedy, but actually these people lived very chaotic lives. Yeah. Like they were rock stars. Do you know what I mean? And that is a different world to be living in. And actually, he might not be the founding member of the 27 Club, but he is almost a pioneer for the excess, what happens to you with the excess of rock and roll. Yeah. Because he is his own demise. He's it's, poisoned because he's having an affair with this man's wife, but the poison on its own wouldn't have killed him had he not drunk himself into a stomach ulcer. So actually, you know, that is that is early excesses. And the really tragic thing about his story is that he was literally months away from becoming a legend. See, if he had made that performance at the Carnegie Hall, as he was intended to do, that would have brought him to a national scale. He had a, a bit of recognition as a result of his record being played, but the reason it didn't catch is because he was he doesn't he didn't exist. But he's, it, he's I mean, dead at that point. And that would probably feed into that narrative of making a deal with a dev- with with the devil because you know, in modern times, we think of the devil as a trickster. Yeah. You make a deal with him. It's yeah. never going to be quite what you think it is. So Robert Johnson makes the deal, becomes a really talented musician, becomes nationally famous, but yeah. doesn't get to see any of that no, fame, no. which is horrifically sad. But, it, you know, if you were someone who's going to believe that he made a deal with the devil, yeah. you'd go, well, that's what you get. And it makes... So obviously, I, I just put my hands up at this point, that, that story was written by me. So... It's the story that we started. Well done. With. It's a very good story. It's based. There's a, there's a lot of truth in it, so it's based on a lot of things. But obviously, all the all the conversations with the devil and stuff like that I haven't got evidence of for obvious <laughs> reasons. But the fact that he he got national recognition so close to after he died makes it made it really easy to to write that in the story. So the devil says to him at one point in the story, "I will make sure that everybody in the world knows who you are." Yeah. But he doesn't give a time frame, and he doesn't give it to him when he's alive. And it is like there's so many writers and musicians yep. and stuff who achieved that huge level of fame after they had died. Yep. And that is, I mean, if if an afterlife exists, right? And, yeah. and say Edgar Allan Poe, for example, yep. is sitting looking at people like fawning over his work. And when yep. he was alive, he lived in abject poverty. He must be like, are you fucking kidding me? Yep. Are you are you fucking for real? Yeah. I'm watching all you bitches, all you emo bitches, reading The Raven and crying about it. Yep. And here I am dead. See, even even with Linda Skinner, so that the album that, that they released an album one month before the plane crash. That's their best selling album in history. Oh, it's, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, not, not all the band members died, but they disbanded from that point for the longest period of time, and then everything they didn't really produce much good stuff after that when they got back together. But you know that for those two band members, that would have been the the pinnacle of their career and they never got to see it. Would you like some new reviews? I'd love some, thank you. We have three new reviews today. Our first one comes from Rodan666 and it is entitled Keep You Wanting More. Emma and Dan produce an entertaining and fun podcast about the supernatural and paranormal. The movie reviews are excellent and give a real life review without getting too in-depth and smarmy the stories they choose to share be their listener stories or stories they've summoned from who knows where will keep your interest and the podcasts are just about the perfect length to end just before you're ready to keep you coming back for more great job thank you rodan six thank you very much um number two comes from chef bobby in new york awesome podcast i've been binge listening to rlgs over the past couple of months and i'm really enjoying it i've tried a few other paranormal podcasts but they don't grab me the way this one does emma tells a great story and dan has interesting takes on them i particularly love it when emma asks are you ready and dan replies no 
Lol, I don't blame you, Dan, but how can you stay away from these engaging, creepy stories? RLGS is on my favourites list, and I know you've heard this a bunch of times, but I love Emma's accent. You know, you can all just keep telling me that. Like, I love <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, she's never going to get tired of it. great for my ego. <laughs> Irish accents are one of my favourite in the world. I'm an Italian from Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Thank you so much, Chef Bobby. And finally, we have Absolutely Fabulous from Mike Higginbotham. Such a good podcast. Five stars is too low. These folks deserve 10 stars. Great storytelling and awesome chemistry between this amazing couple. You will get all the frights and all the funnies you need to get you through your day. Go ahead and give them a listen. You won't regret it. Thank you so much for your review. We love it. Thank you. We absolutely love it. Thank you. And we really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do let Dan know. No, don't. <laughs> No, really Keep do quiet because then I'll have to it. do another one at some point. Yeah, you will. I mean, I'm I'm very grateful for the amount of effort that you put in, but also not grateful because it's making me feel a bit bad about. Well, the I also fell down a I've massive been. rabbit hole, so it was probably. <laughs> but if you did enjoy this week's episode, you can find me on Instagram at Real Life Ghost Stories. You can find Dan on Instagram at Fifty P Movie Club. You can find us on Twitter at Real Ghost Pod. You can send in your stories to Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast at Gmail dot com. You can find us on Facebook, Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast. Give the page a like, leave a little Facebook review and join our supergroup, which is R-L-G-S supergroup. And the password is... Emma and Dan. You can also support us on Patreon, where for $5 a month, you get access to over 50 episodes of Tiny Tales, which is just more spooky stories to brighten your week. You also, if you pledge $2 a month, get access to the complete back catalogue of 50p movie club which is a little podcast that i used to do with will i now do with dave where we get a 50p movie from the 50p section in a shop called cex we watch it it's normally rubbish and we talk about it boom also subscribe to our youtube channel buy our merch all the links are in the description blah, 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 blah. and on that note we shall see you next week bye